0: Hello and welcome to the premiere episode of The Backstory. I'm Jason Bentley. Joined in conversation by cultural luminaries, we'll talk about challenges, inspirations, and shared insights. Joining us at our virtual table today, beloved actor, author, and entrepreneur Kristen Bell, as well as celebrated academic best-selling author and organizational psychologist Adam Grant. We'll discuss living authentically, post-traumatic growth, and the science of optimism, and how even a subtle sleight of hand can change your life for the better. Hi, Kristen and Adam. Welcome to The Backstory.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Ditto what she said. (laughs) Well, Kristen, I want to thank you first off for the suggestion to invite Adam. And I'd love for you to elaborate further, but when I asked you why you thought of him, you, you said that... Quite simply, you felt that Adam wants to help build people up and make the world a better place. Have you guys met before today?
1: Only uh, virtually. We both had a children's book come out a little bit earlier this year, and we helped each other with a couple different, I think, moderations. But I started following him on social media and reading some of his stuff, and I was just completely enamored with how scientific he can get about emotional experiences, I guess, because it's one thing to just want goodness for the world. And it's quite another to do all of your research and figure out what outcomes help people and then share that information. And that to me is like the ultimate goodness. And I'm very, I find his Instagram feed to be my daily therapy.
2: (laughs) I'm not that kind of psychologist.
0: So you, uh, you mentioned that you've both written children's books recently. Of course, there's no better place to start building people up than the foundational stages of uh, childhood. Tell us about creating ideas for children that can resonate. What's that editing process like? You know, I'm a new father myself with twin boys who are just six weeks old. So I'm thinking a lot of how I can impart wisdom and make them better people as I sit there at 3 a.m. bottle feeding.
1: Man, congratulations and also woof.
0: Thank you. But tell us, how do you teach big ideas
2: to little kids?
1: This is Adam's question all the way.
2: Absolutely not. I'm I'm the worst person to ask this question. So I, I feel like I need to call my wife, Allison, because the two children's books we've written, she had brilliant ideas for both of them and then wrote the story and then I suggested two or three things and maybe one of them ended up in the book and then it was done. But I think the, the thing I've learned as a parent from reading to our kids is they just, they light up at the element of surprise. And I think, you know, the books that always stick with us are the ones where, you know, the, the story is going in one direction and all of a sudden there's an aha moment and you realize, you know, this, this kid that you thought was a jerk is actually really caring or this you know this mistake that you thought you made was actually a moment of creative discovery and i've i've long wondered how we can we can hold on to that experience of surprise and then make it a teachable moment
1: i wonder and i'm only thinking of it now if partnerships are part of how you get it done because i wrote my book with one of my best friends ben and and you wrote your book with your wife and i feel like just to completely generalize, one side sometimes tends to have the instinct about what to say and the other side sometimes has the, the how to say it. So you can gain a lot by having a partner and what Adam is referencing is story structure and sort of playing, you know, the typical structure of like a movie in a first and second and third act. The, sec- the end of the second act, you always want everybody to feel like everything is lost and then you build them back up in the third act. And so that everything is lost moment sort of transfers to this, well, here's flipping the script in a children's book, because it's kind of two parts, right? It's one thing you thought, but here's your enlightenment at the end. And you're really, you're able to, with modern children's books, like sort of play against tropes. And you're able to do what Adam just said, which is make the the bad guy, the grumpy kid, the bully, a vulnerable kid and a sort of a teachable moment to, to have kids look at em- empathy. I, I guess I got my ideas from being a parent, but also being super flexible with how to teach. I think that's a key for children's books because there's a thousand different ways to write it. If you know what you're trying to say, I want this book to teach empathy. I want this book to teach that mistakes are uh, proof that we are learning or trying. And then just like how you have to speak differently to your children, or if you don't have kids, your coworkers, you have to adjust your language and how you're saying it to get the greatest outcome. And the greatest outcome in a children's book is is getting through to the kids.
0: Uh, Adam, something that I was drawn to in your book, Originals: How Nonconformists Move the World, you talk about uh, subtle ways to reinforce character. It's in the chapter "Rebel with Cause." Instead of recognizing moral acts with your child, like specific acts, make the shift to identify the child as a moral person in affirming character, more broadly speaking. If I can even quote from the book, we can afford to give children a great deal of freedom if we explain the consequences of their actions on others and emphasize how the right moral choices demonstrate good character. This increases the odds that they will develop the instinct to express their original impulses in the form of moral or creative actions as opposed to deviant ones. But as they grow up, they often don't aim high enough, which that closing thought is kind of your way of saying, dear parents, I'm afraid you're not going to be the, the role models that they need ultimately. <laughs> They're gonna look elsewhere.
2: Yeah, I think, gosh, I, I wrote those words. Uh, <laughs> I think that the, the, the first thing that jumps to mind when when you play it back to me, is our kids hate when I do this, right? Which is, you know, I, I feel like this started out with wanting to raise generous kids. And I, I read all these studies showing that instead of, you know, asking them to help, you should invite them to be a helper because kids get so excited about getting to own the superhero identity, right? And then they feel like they're similar to their role models. And so the, the problem with it is it just sounds ridiculous, right? Like, <laughs> I think you're a giver, as opposed to I think you're a giving person. And so they kind of make fun of me for it. But it's led us into some, some pretty interesting conversations. Uh, one of the, the things that happened recently is our nine-year-old came into my office and she liked a little ceramic, uh, I think it was a balloon dog sculpture. And so she asked if I could, if she could have it. And I said, well, well, no, because somebody gave it to me. And she said, but you always talk about being a giver, so you should give it to me. It's like, oh, my God, my my own arguments are being used against me. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. But yes, you're right. You should be a giver. So why are you trying to take this from me? And she looked at me and she just said, Dad, I'm just a kid. You should set a good example. (laughs) And at that point, I felt like I had to give it to her. But it was such a great moment of our nine-year-old daughter telling me to be a better role model. And it just reminded me as a parent, probably we could do a better job helping our kids find other role models. Who maybe they get to observe from a distance, and they can still really admire them as opposed to knowing how flawed we actually are. Mm.
0: Do you know who your children's role models are?
2: I know who some of them are. I feel like I need to go back now and and ask them for a longer list, but hmm. i've gotten um I've gotten Malala as a frequent role model i've uh, I've heard them name um, Simone Biles quite a few times because they love gymnastics. Mm. Kristen Bell has been named a couple times as well. <laughs>
0: And Kristen, who were some of your role models?
1: I looked up to a couple of my teachers. I looked up to a lot of Broadway women. I was really into Bernadette Peters. I Mm. think at the time I wasn't thinking as much about a well, I suppose I was thinking about accomplishments. I was thinking about who is doing what I want to do. And those were the people I was giving attention to, like Patti Lapone and Bernadette Peters, Randy Graff, Michelle Poff, like all of these sort of Broadway women.
0: Although I, uh, I have to think that there's a lot of hustle behind your success story. And I'd, I'd love for you to talk about that and moving to New York and then ultimately Los Angeles and I heard you say at one point that you kind of, uh, pretended that you had just arrived from New York for a lot longer than, uh, than you had when you came to LA.
1: 18 months longer because <laughs> I, it clicked with me that when I moved to LA, when you'd go in to meet a casting director, which it's not like if you move to LA, you immediately get an appointment with every fan, every casting director the next day. Right. It's a, it's a slow roll and you have to sort of build your career up and, Every time, though, I went in to meet someone new that did not know who I was, which was often, I would say, oh, I just I just moved here from New York. I'm um, really excited to be in L.A. And they, you know, in, a, in those kinds of general meetings, I understood that the relationship is they're figuring out where they can hire me. They're not trying to get to know me. I'm not dating their son. Right they're not going to ask any further questions. So I used it as a trick and I was like trying to be more attractive because I seemed more exotic. Like, Oh, I hadn't known uh, there's a new import from New York city. Uh, I should get my hands on this girl. Yeah. It was a, it was a, a sleight of hand or a lie as some other people call it.
0: You know, you mentioned a uh, sleight of hand and Adam, something I thought was very curious was that Uh, You had an interest in magic as a young man and worked as a professional magician in college. Do you still practice any tricks? And is there a connection between magic and your study in the field of psychology?
2: Uh, Yes and yes. So (laughs) professional is a strong term. I think the thing that really drew me to magic originally was I was an extremely shy introverted kid. And when the kids I babysat for got into magic one day, it was just a it was a fun activity to do with them. And they also sat still for once. And so I went I went home and I learned some tricks and I found it was just it was a natural excuse to come out of my shell. And then as people found out that I could do magic tricks, they, they would approach me with curiosity and I would know what to talk to them about or, or how to interact with them uh, as opposed to just feeling like, OK, I'm a dorky kid. I should probably not not uh, initiate this interaction at all. And I didn't know what I was getting into was, you know, was preparing to be a public speaker and preparing to at least learn how to entertain an audience. Um, what I did know, though, was that there was a ton of psychology in the magic that I did. And I could do the, the same card trick and just misdirecting your attention a little bit would completely change your reaction to it. And so I found myself over time, you know, doing uh, just simple sleight of hand and then asking you a question and waiting until you'd look me right in the eye uh, to, to, to make sure that if, you know, if I slipped a little bit or... You know, you might, you might catch a little bit of, uh, of a card that you weren't supposed to see that, that then you weren't going to notice it. And I was amazed at how much of a difference it made in the performances that I did. And I guess that was in the back of my mind when, when I became a psychologist and when I started uh, landing on TED stages to say, okay, this is just an application of the skills I learned in magic in a, in a different context and also in a way that I hope is much more honest and data-driven as opposed to saying, hey, Jason, I'm going to fool you and you're going to love it.
0: Yeah, no, I, I feel like there is this sort of sleight of hand in your writing quite a bit, but it's a way for you to make your ideas more accessible, that kind of head fake. And so ultimately it helps people identify with the process of, say, thinking differently with the book originals. Even from the beginning of originals, you admit at the start of the book, your own epic fail in uh, not investing in Warby Parker.
2: Thanks for reminding me. I've been looking forward to to being dragged back back through that blunder. But go on. I
0: guess uh, you you knew the guys who were putting the company together uh, when they were like eating ramen, early days for them. But then you go on in a later chapter, in chapter three, to tell us that leading with weaknesses disarms the audience, makes you seem trustworthy and smart. So the, you know, there's an example <laughs> of sort of. The sleight of hand in, in your writing. And I found that at, at so many different points. But again, it's only in the interest of making your ad- ideas more accessible for people to understand them and identify with them.
2: I, I've had this frustrating experience where I, I do a study and I'm, I'm kind of stunned by the results. And then I tell other people about it and they're like, well, that's obvious. And at some point I realized that if I hadn't told them the result, they wouldn't have guessed it. And that if I could set up their expectations a little bit for why it might be a big surprise, then there's a much bigger eureka moment that comes out of it. And so, you know, I think actually this idea of, of leading with weaknesses is a, is a great example, right? So the moment I tell you, look, if, if you can admit one of your flaws or one of your failures, people will, will see you as more human and vulnerable and authentic and trustworthy. you are like, yeah, duh. Thank you for telling me something I already knew. If I could open instead, though, by saying... You know, it's it's so interesting that there are all these people out there who are super successful and afraid to talk about any of their stumbles because they know the moment they show they're human, they're no longer going to seem superhuman. And it's going to undermine your sense that they're competent and capable. What would happen if we could actually get them to reveal some of their vulnerabilities? Is that a good idea? Is that a bad idea? And now you're intrigued and curious, right? And the, the hope is then that you've got something to learn regardless of what we find. One
0: thing I really took away from originals was uh, you show this this power of just shifting a shifting a frame of reference and even if it is ever so slightly that subtle differences can can be huge the examples of of a tempered radical in the women's suffrage movement or also uh, transforming fear into another strong positive emotion hilarity when you're referencing activists in Serbia who were uh, resisting the uh, Milosevic regime at the time. It's interesting how if you just look at things a little differently, it can make such a huge difference.
2: I, I find that endlessly interesting. And I, I feel like I, I run into examples of it everywhere. So you know, if we go back to when I passed on Warby Parker, and I, I should say, by the way, this year, I finally became a Warby Parker investor 10 years too late, but <laughs> better late than never. One of the things that, that led me to say no to them was just the idea of buying glasses online. Is, it's absurd, right? I, I know you have to go get your eyes tested, then you have to try them on. And so the idea that you could digitize that business, seems it just seems like a silly idea, right? And it turned out I was not the only early investor or potential customer who just rejected that right out of hand. But then they started saying, well, we're going to do for glasses what Zappos did for shoes. And all these people got intrigued and they said, well, you know, five years ago, I never would have ordered shoes online, but now I do that three times a week. So maybe glasses could go the same way. And then GQ gave them this, uh, this little lift and they said, this company is the Netflix for eyewear. And that just took off, right? Because we all have these vivid memories. I-, I remember growing up in Michigan where on a Friday night, we'd want to rent a movie and we'd have to drive to Blockbuster. And then after watching the movie, you have to rewind it in your VCR, and then if you didn't, you pay a late fee or some kind of you know, like rewind fee. Like, how is that ever a business? That's insane, right? And so if you could digitize that, it feels like maybe glasses wouldn't be so hard. And that kind of frame shift, which is very literal in the eyeglasses sense, right, is enough to get all these people who think Warby Parker is a dumb idea to say this is actually a smart idea. And I wonder how many of those opportunities were missing. Um, Kristen, I have to ask you, What you just had a very strong facial reaction. Are you the person who never rewound? The movie after you rented it?
1: I like rules because I'm like, you know what? I didn't do the amount of research into this as someone else does. This obviously makes someone's life easier. I'm not like a challenger by nature. So I always rewind it. But I didn't remember that we had to rewind it until the moment you just said it. And that's it. It just brought, it's such a visceral memory for me of like, oh, shoot, did you not rewind it? We put it in the back in the VCR before we take it back in.
0: You may have just answered the question, but I was going to ask you, Kristen, if you think of yourself as a non conformist?
1: Kind of. I think of myself as a rule follower and a nonconformist. Mm. I'm not a challenger, but I have a lot of weirder instincts that I have confidence enough to follow or at least to try out. I am the example. I don't want to ask Adam to say I was the inspiration for this book, so we'll just leave it at that, but his <laughs> children's book this year, Leaf the Leaf, is about a leaf who is afraid to fall from a tree and he doesn't want to fall. And all of his friends are saying, all leaves fall in the fall. You have no choice, you have no choice. And he's trying to make every contraption possible at his fingertips to get him to not fall. And he makes a net and he makes a parachute and he makes a rope and they all fail, they all break. And finally in the fall, he does fall, but he lands on top of a soft pile, which are all of his previous tries. And it's a beautiful book. And I feel like I have an ability to not, to feel okay about trying and failing, trying and failing, trying and failing and keep doing it again. So in that way, I'm a nonconformist because I'm again, like, I'm like, well, I just don't, my brain, my sequencing brain just tells me there's a more efficient way to do this. I'm going to try something different. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I'm not like a, um, I'm not a challenger by nature. I don't love conflict. And I like to follow the rules because I like to believe that people are good. It makes me feel safe. That's sort of my religion that makes my brain organized is like, no, people have beating hearts and they are out for good. Even though sometimes my husband reminds me that's not always the case, I like to believe that people are good and that rules exist. Traffic stops exist for a reason, you know, those kinds of things. But I wouldn't say I'm a conformist.
0: You know, hearing you talk, it it seems like you've, you've reached a point in your life and career that there's such a healthy interplay between work life and personal life. And I feel looking back, even at at your roles over the years, uh, you've enjoyed that sort of interaction. You know, like you were a new mom and at that time you're in the movie, Bad Moms, or you know, you had the time to develop the character in Frozen. You had the luxury of 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 a period of time there. Not everybody can crack that code of finding that healthy interplay between work life, personal life. How does that happen? I mean, is it just luck? Is it conscious decisions? You know, how, how can people experience more of that relationship, which is often such a, a disconnect?
1: Well, it's certainly luck. I mean, you're not an actor paying your own bills if you're not lucky, that's for sure. But I think it also, it has to do with rather than set goals that have been dictated by the industry or accolades, I really try to look at what I can do well, which means that when, you know, in my business, you have general meetings with producers and, the first question is always, what do you want to do next? And I'm always like stumped. And I immediately feel like a fraud because I'm like, I have literally no idea. <laughs> Just I don't know. I don't know. Is this meeting over now? I don't know. And so I really try to, uh, the way I can articulate it is that I go based on my gut and I go based on what I feel I will do well at that will still challenge me a little bit. And I know the things that challenge me well, as an, as an actor, I like finding someone who's a little bit inherently unlikable on the page and getting you to figure out how to get you to root for her. But anytime I was going through a period of like angst in my twenties and found Veronica Mars and like connected, I feel that plug in. I feel it physically when I read something bad moms. I just had a baby. I was learning about what the heck that whole life was going to be like. And this script came up bad moms and rather than going like I just had a baby you know what I want to do what I've seen other people do is get super fit to feel good about myself and then try to be in a marvel movie or something like I I just didn't want anyone else dictating what my thing would be and and luckily there's enough out there uh, enough scripts enough writers directors that there's not one type of project so I've always based it on a little bit what's honest to where I am what feelings do i have in my life that i can then transfer into this character
0: adam you you host a a podcast called work life and these are a range of topics in the workplace but can people really expect to have more control of a healthy relationship to, between their personal life and and their work life
2: i i think we're going to demand it in the next few years right if there's anything the pandemic has taught us it's <laughs> from a work perspective anyway it's People are really tired of either having to bring their work home all the time or having to sleep at work. And I think the employers that are going to differentiate themselves in the next decade are the ones that say, look, we we not only want you to have a personal life, we're going to try to help make that a reality. It's probably easier said than done, though. I've, I've hated the idea of work-life balance for a long time because I don't know anybody who's even remotely successful that has any sense of balance in their day, right? You, you might have one day where all you do is work. And then you have another day where you feel like you don't work at all and you've just procrastinated the entire day. And I think I, I've started to see this much more in terms of rhythm, where you know what, I, what I'm looking for is at the level of a week or a month or a year, I'm hoping that, you know, that I get to, to return to, you know, to different refrains or different melodies. But to have a balanced day, no thanks.
0: So here's the backstory on Doucet Cognac. Born in the Chateau de Cognac, and crafted to be bold yet remarkably smooth, Doucet is a modern expression of cognac unlike any other. With over 200 years of heritage, drink Doucet straight or enjoy it in a cocktail for the ultimate luxury cognac experience. Visit Doucet.com and discover your new favorite spirits. That's D U S S E.com. Kristen, I want to ask you because, you know, you have not been afraid to push through the divide. We see you on screen, but you've also been very public about your personal issues, your marriage, your anxiety, depression. What do you feel that you gain from being open? I mean, is it, is it, is it a cathartic experience?
1: Yeah. Peace of mind with my own authenticity, I think is hmm. the best way to describe it. Like, And what's funny is, and this is what I say is the most annoying part about my husband. He's almost always right. And when I say almost always, I mean like really almost always. It's so annoying. And he, I thought I was trucking through life, doing a great job and with my career. And um, I was about to do a long form interview, which means that it's like this long form, you know, it's not a snippet on uh, Sam Jones. And I said, gosh, what am I going to talk about? I have nothing to talk about. I have been through a press tour. I feel like I have no stories. I'm a broken record. And he said, why don't you talk about your anxiety and depression, your struggle with that, like what it means to you and how it happens to you and what comes out of it. And I was like, have I never talked about that before? And then immediately felt weird. Like I shouldn't because I was in a mindset back then that I should be more presentational, again, allowing the sort of culture to dictate what I was presenting, which I don't do anymore. I don't abide by that. So my non-conformist comes in. My husband was like, yeah, talk about that. And, and I realized I had been presenting this like bubbly individual and it just wasn't the full story. It didn't have the dimension. And I felt this sickening wave of fraudulence and inauthenticity and I went on and I and I brought it up. He didn't even know I was going to bring it up and I was like, well actually, I struggle with like pretty severe anxiety and a fair amount of depression. Here's how I handle it. Here's how it comes out. I I don't necessarily show it because I don't feel like putting myself on Instagram when I'm in those moments, but they happen. I want to talk about them. I want to alleviate the shame. I want to tell people that that my mom tried to alleviate the shame because she also struggles with the same thing and what my road was like and The goal was mainly to, I guess, since we're relating it to this, show dimension. I think we're monkeys. We want to watch each other. We want to learn from example. People rarely take advice or it's not as likely, I find. That's not necessarily the best road. I see it with my husband. I see it with my kids. I see it sometimes with me. You can ignore words, but an example is so much stronger. And I said, I'm going to start being who I want to be on my deathbed. I want to be the person who talks honestly and says, I get what I present to you. It's not always the case. So if you're feeling that too, just know I'm right here with you.
0: Adam, you've uh, collaborated with your wife, Allison, and you've also written a book with uh, Facebook COO, Sheryl Sandberg. What do you feel you have learned from being open to collaboration and especially with these women in your life?
2: I think I've avoided collaborating a lot of a lot of my career because I'm sort of a control freak and I like to do things a certain way. And I feel like you know I, I felt like for a long time if I was going to write with somebody else, then you know they were going to end up messing with the way I wanted to tell a story or the way I was trying to make a point. And it never occurred to me that they might make it better, uh, which is really sad in retrospect. And working with Allison and with Cheryl has just made it so clear that. You know the, the same way that I learn from other people every day when I talk to them and ask them questions, I can learn from other people when looking at how they write and how they might rewrite my sentences. And so it's just been an, an eye-opening experience to say, okay, look, just because you, you had an insight uh, doesn't mean you're always going to explain it in the clearest or, or most compelling way. Um, and in fact, the closer you are to it, the harder it is for you to see how to make sense of it. And that's when you know, somebody who might come from a different perspective is, is most likely to enrich it and make it shine.
0: Adam, I wanted to ask you about your book with Sheryl Sandberg and navigating that collaboration. Uh, You write in originals, quote, uh, if we want to express a set of emotions, we need to actually experience them. She went through a horrible experience of losing her husband tragically and suddenly while, you know, on vacation in Mexico, right? So how did you approach this? Did you feel you had to share her pain to a certain extent to really be authentic with, with the writing?
2: I don't think that's the kind of pain that anybody can share, honestly. Uh, I think I, I was definitely grieving because Cheryl's husband, Dave, was a friend of mine and somebody I looked up to a tremendous amount and one of the biggest givers I've ever met. But you know, to the, the idea of you know, imagining what it was like for her to not only lose her husband suddenly, but also then uh, have to go and tell her kids that their father was gone. And then be in this all alone. I mean, that, that was just, that was heartbreaking to, to watch. And I don't think there's any way to, you know, to, to really imagine that kind of experience. I think though that, I don't know, one of the things that I found really helpful was I, there's some therapists who create these, uh, they call it a kvetching circle is the term for it. And so you put the, the person who's suffering the most uh, right in the center. And so that's Cheryl and her kids. And then you start to draw circles around them for how directly affected people are by the event. And so, you know, as a, as a friend of the family, I'm a couple circles removed. And so I'm feeling some pain. But my job is basically to look at the people in the center of the circle and say, how can I help them? And I think the sad thing is that, you know, for, for most of my life up until this, this moment and writing option B, I was the person who, who would go to those people in the center of the circle and say, you know what can i do please let me know if you need anything and i didn't realize that that was one not helpful at all and two it was actually putting the burden back on them because then they have to know what they need they have to feel comfortable asking for help and that the best things that that people did regardless of what they were feeling um were really just people showing up in specific ways and saying you know what i've you know i've i've cooked a spaghetti dinner and it's on your porch you can throw it away or eat it uh, I just, you know, I just wanted you to know that I'm thinking of you. You know, the the people that would would send a, just a weekly note saying, hi, I, I care about you and I'm thinking of you. No need to reply. Right. And just that that little bit of showing up means so much to people who are suffering and it it fades really quickly. Right. Everybody, everybody responds when something bad happens in the first couple of weeks of the crisis and then people disappear. And all of a sudden, the, the hardest part, which is kind of the long days and, and weeks and months, uh, you're all alone and you feel like nobody's thinking of you and nobody's reaching out to you. And so that, that was just a, a big aha for me to say, okay, checking in, doing something rather than you know just offering anything uh, is, a, is a huge step in the right direction.
0: Okay. I want to talk pandemic uh, before we get the check here at Soho House. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I for one am definitely experiencing COVID fatigue, but you know, just because I'm over the pandemic doesn't mean uh, the pandemic is over. <laughs> Kristen, any advice for the existential anxiety that we're all feeling uh, this year? Well, the CBD products, actually. maybe the that's-
1: Light CBD is not a bad <laughs> idea. Okay. Keep it in your purse. I favor reframing. Every single moment of every single day. Sometimes I have to wake up and immediately reframe. <laughs> like I open my eyes and I'm like, Ugh, I hate this day. I'm going to reframe because I'm exhausted or I was up all night or I just feel depressed or I'm anxiety riddled about whatever. And so my reframing for COVID involves a lot of, hey, you know what I bet my grandpa was sick of? The war. Like I, I really bet he got sick of that. So like, there's a ton of other things other than, again, and I say this with all the privilege in the world that we have a backyard, I can certainly see how someone who lives in a one bedroom apartment with five other people has a, a more stressful time with this. But for me, it's reframing that I like giving, I'm fatigued of it as well, but I am not willing to let that fatigue make allow me to make decisions that put other people at risk. You know, Adam, I use your little cue about, uh, you know, we're moral people when I know you're not supposed to label your kids and there's all these parenting books, say careful when you call them smart because you want them to still achieve. But I call them kind. I say we're kind girls in this house because I've found nothing wrong with that label yet. And I want them to own it like a gang. I want that to be our club. Like we are kind girls. And when we went and got our flu shot last week, um, we put our masks on and they didn't want to do it. And I mean, last year it was like it, it was like a scene a set piece from a comedy movie. My five-year-old had a panic attack and the pharmacist and I had to hold her down. And the pharmacist was like, are you sure you want to give it to her now? Do you want to come back? I was like, I can't, this is the only time I can do it. But I said to them, we're going to get our flu shot. It's going to hurt, but we are doing this because we are helping our neighbors. I framed them like a superhero a little bit. I said, we have an obligation to our community. We are kind girls. We are going to protect our elderly neighbors by getting this flu shot. And they really did. They sat there and they cringed and they got the flu shot because I just reframed their pain for them. And so I think we have to be so mindful during the fatigue of COVID to reframe that we are still so lucky because it is, it's very American to be like, I'm just over it. Like I can't and just get out there again, but we just can't, we have to listen to the doctors. So we find a lot of fun, weird, interesting stuff to do at home. I've given everyone a lot of grace. The kids are allowed to destroy the house. We paint every cardboard box that comes in just for another craft, uh, and we make it. We make it work.
0: You know, I, I kind of feel guilty saying this, and it goes against <laughs> all logic. It seems, but for me, these months in quarantine have been marked by by growth and um, expression, as opposed to contraction. And that's not to discount the hardships uh, that people have experienced and endured. And I know that this year has been a giant shit show, mm-hmm. but for me, it feels like the hard reset that we've been going through has on some level been very necessary. Should I feel bad feeling, feeling that way? Uh, I mean, ultimately I, I can only hope that we can learn something from this experience and going forward, make the best decisions socially and politically For our future. But I mean, I I just feel, you know, is that a terrible thing to say?
2: (laughs) Yes, you're an asshole. Is that what you want to? No, (laughs) no, that's, that's, uh, there's a term for that in psychology. It's called post traumatic growth. It's sort of the opposite of PTSD. And if you look at trauma, right, roughly 15% of people end up with some version of PTSD after going through a horrible life altering event. And then what most of us think we need to do is we need to bounce back and that's resilience, post-traumatic growth is actually bouncing forward and saying, look, I, I wish I could undo this pandemic. right? I wish it had never happened. I would go back in a heartbeat if I could, but I know I can't. And so the best thing I can do is grow from it. And I think, Jason, you're describing one of the forms of post-traumatic growth, which is uh, feeling a sense of, of gratitude right, for the opportunity to, to rethink where your life is going or how you want to spend your time uh, or appreciating small things that you never appreciated before. Like how many of us are going to go into a restaurant for the first time and say, this is such a joy to be able to sit down indoors and have a meal with other people that I haven't seen in a while. There's a sense of personal strength that also comes along with, with post-traumatic growth that I got through that. I can get through almost anything. And many of us also come out of trauma with deeper relationships and a new sense of purpose saying, look, the, the people that I I struggled through on this are now closer to me than I ever thought I could be with anyone. And I now know what the meaning of, of my life or my time is in a way that I wasn't clear on before. So I, I actually think in all seriousness that the, the, the mindset shift that you've had is something that we should all be aspiring toward.
0: Well, Kristen and Adam, I, I feel like we could talk all day. Before we go, I wonder if you two could imagine collaborating. I would love to, to say that this interaction was uh, the starting point for anything, but what would that look like if you guys were to work together?
1: I mean, I would literally do anything Adam wanted. (laughs) I like his brain so much. You know, in his research, he tells us you have to come up with a thousand ideas to get a good one. I don't know if I'd be the catalyst for an idea, but I'd certainly try.
2: Kristen, you you have more good ideas per day than I've had in my life. I No, every every time I've talked to you, I I come out thinking, I wish I was that creative. And this is also fun because I... (laughs) I had this, uh, Jason. This will this will probably give you a little bit of context on on my answer to your question. Uh, although Kristen and I have not met in person, I have been in her attic. And <laughs> when I went and, and met Dax and Monica last year, I came home and I said, I, I was trying to explain to Allison what it was like. And I said, okay, you know FOMO. What I have is a ROMO. Uh, it's the regret of missing out. And. It, more specifically, it's the regret of having missed out on all the years that I could have been friends with Dax if only we had met when we were both living in Michigan. And I feel like I would have been a better person, a smarter person, um, a, a more honest and authentic person if I had known him sooner. And the most irritating thing about meeting Kristen has been that she might be even more awesome than her husband. And so uh, they're my favorite couple. And anything that I could do with, any, with either of them uh, would be just a joy and a treat.
0: Well, hey, I want to thank both of you for your, your spirit and your kindness and your intelligence and your time here joining us on The Backstory. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you. I want to thank my guests for joining me today for The Backstory. I do recommend that you check out Adam's podcast, Work Life. And I am for sure going to try out Kristen's CBD cream. I think we can all use... A little anxiety relief these days. Do let me know what you think of this podcast. I'm on Twitter at Jason underscore Bentley. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The Backstory is a 101 Podcast Studios production brought to you by Soho House with the support of Duce Cognac. I'll see you next time on The Backstory.